0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And along with me today, well, in spirit at least, are fellow saloners, Elsa C., Asha T., Alan R. and Simon N., all of whom made recent donations to the salon to uh, help us keep on keeping on. And, uh, hey, your donations are very much appreciated. I thank you all very much. Also, uh, I received a note from Wadapen, who said, and I quote, "...I spent the last couple of days at the Beyond Psychedelics conference in Prague and am wondering if there's an overlap between the salon crowd and the attendees." Was anybody else from the salon there? And if you were, uh, hey, why don't you post a comment to today's program notes uh, or on the forums, and uh, maybe we can help somebody find the others. Also, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about Shamans of the Global Village, uh, Episode 1, which I consider to be, well, one of the most excellent psychedelic documentaries yet made. And if you hurry, uh, they are currently streaming it from their website for free. And you can find it at shamansoftheglobalvillage.com. All one word, shamansoftheglobalvillage.com. And I'm sure that you're going to enjoy watching it. Uh, In fact, I plan on watching it for a second time myself. Well, uh, I've got a couple more announcements to make, but I'll save them until after we first listen to today's talk by Terrence McKenna. And this is the final session of a weekend workshop that Terence held in early August 1997. And uh, since it was a wrap-up session, <laughs> well, he touched on quite a few topics, including, well, psychedelic elders, who were some of his influences, nanotechnology, the eschaton in 2012, a little more on the time wave, virtual aliens, artificial intelligence augmented reality, death, the afterlife, free will, and aging. (laughs) And uh, since this session lasted less than two hours, he uh, obviously didn't go into great detail about such a wide range of topics, but uh, nonetheless, it's a really fun summing up of the weekend. Now, I'm afraid that you'll hear a few spots where Terrence's voice is a, a bit distorted, and uh, while I exercised the cassette tape, uh, you know, fast forward and reversed uh, before digitizing it, there still were a couple of places where, well, I guess it must have stretched a bit. Uh, there are few and far between, but I just wanted you to know that it was the technology that uh, distorted his voice and that Terrence wasn't really drunk uh, like it sometimes sounds. Uh, and there's also a brief gap where the tape obviously ran out and had to be turned over. But uh, other than that, the recording of this last session of his workshop is uh, just as it took place. And when we get to the end of Terence's final wrap in this workshop, where he speaks very strongly about uh, what is called political correctness, well, try to imagine that he isn't just speaking to the people in the room with him at the time. Imagine, if you will, that when Terrence begins speaking about the fuzzy, friendly world of political correctness, that he is talking directly to you, and about the times that we are currently living in.
1: Terrence, I'm curious, uh, are there other people who have done a lot of work in this field that have particularly influenced you or who you have Uh, admired much or kind of resonated with as far as their
2: their perspectives. By this field, you mean? Psychedelics. Yeah, well, I certainly, I mean, for instance, Richard Evans Schultes at Harvard, his work absolutely defines and dominates the field. In a sense, it would hardly exist without him over 50 years of research and continuous publication and shaping graduate students uh, to carry out research projects that he conceived he uh, you could say almost single-handedly built the ethnobotanical database on psychoactivity he spent years in the amazon himself he uh, then ran the harvard herbaria and all that so he was an he is an enormous influence on anyone he's the Newton and the Abraham of the field now he's very elderly and retired uh, but his influence is major uh, now and well another person is Gordon Wasson, who it, now his legacy has to be assessed Differently, maybe, than it was ten years ago. What Gordon Wasson was, above all else, was an enthusiast. Mm-hmm. And he was never a man short on of theories. And But now it appears that some of his theories were somewhat specious. Or perhaps he didn't have all the information that we now have. I think he was wrong to be such an enthusiast for Amanita Muscaria as the source of Soma, as the basis of an Indo-European hallucinogen, It's puzzling to go back and deconstruct it and see why he thought that. Uh, uh, But nevertheless, his belief that psychedelics were at the roots of religion His belief that you couldn't understand culture unless you looked at the hallucinogens they were using or not using. What do you think that sound is and what it would take to stop it? But we've been in here, we've been doing this for 30 years and it's never happened. So it did. (laughs) Anyway, we just seem to be hitting a lot of speed bumps this morning. Uh, Frankly, I don't give a shit, uh, but I'm trying to make it pleasant for you.
0: Uh,
2: So, Wasson and Schultes were, and then further back in time, and I think it's obvious from what I've said, Aldous Huxley. And Aldous Huxley is a very interesting case study because Huxley wrote one of the most savagely anti-drug books ever written, perhaps the most intelligent anti-drug book ever written, which is Brave New World, which pictures a, a world of genetic engineering and uh, all social problems are solved by, with a drug, a drug called SOMA, and all-anxiety SOMA, All relationship difficulties, SOMA. All existential (laughs) doubts, SOMA. And he also, you know, written in 1937, pictures a society based on cloning that is way in advance of anything we have now and completely realistic to this day. I mean, you should read Brave New World if you haven't read it. So he starts out there, a British academic intellectual with a horror of... Uh, drugs mind control all of this and then by a process of rational self-education he he becomes by the time he writes the doors of perception and heaven and hell the most eloquent exponent of the psychedelic experience that in some ways it's ever had um and a very intelligent um educated, sensitive person. I mean, I, I'm certainly not Aldous Huxley, but that's who I would aspire to be. I mean, that's my model. Urbane, educated, you know, avuncular humor, very gentle, uh, and, uh, and in all things a, a, a great humanist. So those three people really, for me, shape the field. People ask about my relationship to to Tim Leary. I knew Tim as an icon when I was a kid, but he, I w- followed all that. Uh, we followed, but we doubted, is I guess what it was, because the humanness of those leaders was all too obvious. Then in later life, when I got to know Tim as a friend, he, he was just a, a great... A great guy and but his enthusiasms were social and political and visionary and that and so were our mine largely Uh, the but these other people were did the scientific drudge work the chemistry the botany so forth and so on Uh, you know if you want to expand the circle larger and talk about influences on my thought generally uh, Whitehead uh, you know I'm an, basically a kind of Platonist uh, in, the, in the tradition of modified Neoplatonic idealism so is uh, Whitehead all process philosophy falls under that I, I was influenced by people like L.L. L. White and C.H. Waddington. Uh, these are biologists, theoretical biologists. The only person, well, maybe, I don't know, but, the, well, the only person who comes to mind that I would say mentored me or, or worried about my intellectual unfoldment in the directions that I finally followed was Eric Yonch, who some of you may know probably not most. He wrote a number of books, Design for Evolution, The Self-Organizing Universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was a Viennese futurist who took me under his wing about 1972 until he died in 1979. And we met weekly uh, at his favorite Chinese restaurant in Berkeley. (laughs) And, And he not only introduced me to holistic science, but he also introduced me to careerism, how you handle academic rivalries, and because he was an organizational crawler and uh, a very, as I say, astute Viennese. If you look at the history of the 20th century, the Viennese have their fingerprints all over the entire thing. I mean, you know, the Freudians, the uh, positivists, Wittgenstein and uh, his school, and Eric Jansch, Paul Feyerabend, all those anarchist people came out of U of V, and uh, and uh, he was part of it, as far as I could tell. The last man to have sex with Alma Mahler, now that's something. <laughs> Do
1: you know what ever happened to that Professor Bogota Horatio?
2: Horacio Calle. Yeah, actually, I do. Why do you ask? Well, I just,
1: from the original rap, I went down to see him in Amazon.
2: No, no, it wasn't quite like that. No, when we got to San Jose del Encanto at the mouth of the Caraparana, we were told that there was an anthropologist with the Witoto and that he would possibly know this was information from the priest there that he would possibly know about this drug that we were looking for well then when we found him he was in his own little private Idaho as I describe in true hallucinations because he was uh, he basically had taken over this tribe I mean it was a mr. Kurtz deal they were his Indians, his river, his jungle, and he was way into coke. And uh, his wife, who was also an anthropologist, was an English girl, Annalisa. And uh, they, she was very concerned, and um, he basically tried to discourage us from going on to La Guaira told us about a murder that had occurred there told us we would never get these people to cooperate because we didn't speak we toto and I ba- and I think he was feeding these people strange information about us one i mean one day he came the second morning when we were there he came to us and he said and here we were you know a Jewish girl, two Irishmen, a Polak, and something else. And uh, he came to us and said, uh, I'm studying the social structure of these people, and I don't want them contaminated by the outside world. So would you please tell them that your brothers and sisters... <laughs> and it was like, uh, <laughs> I hope they don't ask. But it's, I don't know where I was in the world, but somewhere in the last year I met somebody, some ghost from my past. And I said, whatever happened to Horacio Calle? And they said, uh, he got real disillusioned with Indians and he came back to Bogota, his Marxism hardened. He uh, was accused of some uh, philandering with a female student at the University de los Andes and he was, uh, lost his job there and then he went to organize the poor in uh, the ghettos of Southern Calle. And he was caught up in the cocaine politics somehow and uh, died. So, that's the story. I, I was at a party in London a few months ago, and I met this guy Martin Hildebrand, who's a big-time Colombian anthropologist and conservationist. And it, it was a rainforest fundraising thing, and he told me that now at La Chorrera there's an, a coordinating office for this ecological agency that has UN funding so apparently there are they bring airplanes in and out of there and uh, it's it's thriving whatever that may mean in the Colombian Amazon these days It's strange that I've never been back uh, since I've been near there in 79, uh or in 80 I went to the Rio Ampiacu Yaguasíasu basin which is just 2 or 300 miles south of there and spent 6 weeks but uh, you know if you're interested in ayahuasca and the history of the southern putumayo and all of this I don't think you can read a better nor more challenging book than Michael Taussig's book uh, Shamanism, Colonialism, and The Wild Man. It, it's, it really, it will astonish you what that book covers and the tones it sounds. Anyway, I'm just sort of rambling here. Anybody? Yeah. Um, we
1: went through time wave uh,
2: Zero last night, and I'm... Now that we all uh, have a clear understanding and,
1: and clear mathematical uh, equation, uh, can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on how the uh, speeding up of novelty and the, and, and the uh, overwhelming—you
2: mean how that will look as we head
1: towards time? I do. It, uh, how it's going to affect the society and, and culture?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, uh, um, first thing to introduce a concept that we haven't dealt with relative to the time wave is each one of those cycles that I mentioned of the different durations in some way is like a a lower octave of the higher cycles or a resonance so that in some very broad and general sense the same themes are iterated on different scales so it can be a tool for understanding like things as ephemeral as fashion and fads and hysterias and art movements and things like that. In other words, suddenly uh, in a certain time period, let's say somewhere in the 20th century, let's say the 1930s, suddenly in the 1930s uh, clawed bathtubs become the big thing. Well, ordinarily, this is you don't seek a mathematical explanation for this, but in my world, what you do is you look at where you are in time, then you go one level up, and you see if it's an era where clawed bathtubs made an appearance. So, by that kind of thinking, the, la, that 67-year cycle, which stretches from the resonance of the Big Bang that is the atom blast over Hiroshima to December 21st 2012 that 67 year cycle is an iteration of the previous 4,306 year cycle and larger cycles above it but for the moment let's just talk about how it's a resonance of this 4,306 year cycle in that case then you can ask the question well then where are we in that cycle the answer is we're almost I think it will happen within the next month we're almost to a thousand A.D. so what that means to me is that between roughly now and 2012 we must traverse through a temporal landscape that contains in miniature, as it were, all the themes, forces, affects, and concerns that have been traversed since 1000 A.D. Do you follow this? So, for instance, you know, we won't even reach Newtonian physics till 2008 we won't reach the quantum physics till late in 2010. So what we are at this point are unwashed peasants, dimly aware that, you know, some protean force is beginning to stir. But we haven't built gothic cathedrals yet, let alone discovered the new world, let alone achieved powered flight, let alone... You know, all these things will come 2008, 2009, 2010 and the, the compression will be excruciating we can't imagine what this will be like I mean right now in terms of my low scale historical vision without the time wave I can only see about three years into the future and what I see there is uh, Uh, 256K bandwidth as standard issue equipment for everybody. And uh, virtual reality is so real you can't tear your eyes from them. I mean, I I talked to Alan Bediner yesterday. He came back from Seagraph. And, you know, we've all been watching VR for 10 years. And he said, you know, they're, they're, they're getting their chops together you know it's getting much more interesting and we have three uh, uh, so but you know the real technologies that will shape the condensation of the eschaton probably don't even have to do with the internet. Mm-hmm. The internet is in this resonance system sort of like the invention of uh, the universal postal authority in the 16th century Well, you know, we laugh, but on the other hand, the birth of modern science is entirely linked to the establishment of the Universal Postal Union, because suddenly Leibniz could send letters to Newton, and, you know, all these people could communicate with each other on a scale of weeks instead of years or never, and they all knew each other big science has always been international in scope you know it started out using latin and mathematics and uh, so the technologies that will shape the eschaton are i think things like uh, virtual or i mean nanotechnology which you know we have a hard time even imagining what this will be like i mean this is a world where Uh, you know, everything is made at temperatures below 110 degrees. There are no smelting of metals, no high pressure, high temperature annealing of plastics. Everything from automobiles to computers to clothing is grown in vats, essentially. Vats of basic substratum material which are seeded by artificial polymers which contain molecular assembly messages just like DNA does which are read by artificial ribosomes to create all classes of objects including foods including possibly other beings Uh, so this we are we have not nobody's begun to tell the people about this. The people thought, well if we get used to the internet maybe it will stop. <laughs> no, no, the internet is, is nothing compared to what's coming. Well then there are other things like, uh, you know, then there's the wild card option, which is if you, if you take, if you section any 50-year period of past history in the past 500 years, you will discover that a wild card emerges at least once every every fifty years, and the wild card for us could be something like uh, it could be interdimensional travel. It could, you know, a time machine is a starship because of the nature of space time. If you can, if you can travel at percentages, high percentages of the speed of light, you simply turn that technology on its head and you can move uh, through time. The other breakthrough is, you know, I, I you've heard me rail against extraterrestrial intervention physically, but I think the non-local medium of communication may eventually disclose aliens that are virtual aliens, but with whom we will trade data. And that's all you want anyway. What do you need the alien flesh for? What you need is the alien soul. And the alien soul can probably be assembled in a simulacrum on the Internet with sufficient fidelity to what it is that it is entirely as much like being with the alien as the real thing. Uh, so, and, uh, so time travel, time travel, we've talked about that in these uh, meetings because time travel would be a technology which would fulfill the predictions of the time wave without causing the intervention of God Almighty in human history and collapsing the state vector and all that. Uh, in other words, if, if linear history can be portrayed as a graph of increasing novelty, then what happens when you invent time travel is time ceases to be a serial phenomenon And you can therefore no longer portray it on a Cartesian graph. It spreads out in all dimensions, in all directions. So what would a time travel technology look like? We can't imagine that. I mean, we don't have the intellectual equipment. This is the part where you discover we're in the 10th century. We're unwashed peasants drinking bad beer and wearing scratchy wool. Uh, we can no more conceive of time travel than a peasant in 10th century France could conceive of modern Manhattan. You know, It's just beyond us. And all, and the, the collapse of social systems like Marxism have just unleashed completely chaotic creativity. You know, everything is trying to... Everyone is trying to figure out the next new thing, the next great thing, which can then be changed into the universal medium uh, of money. And... Uh, uh, Well, we could just go on and on Uh, I think basically the key concept as we approach the eschaton and this guides us as we look into the past as well is boundary dissolution it's been happening for a very long time let's not go back more than 500 years 500 years ago Half A of the planet discovered half B. There was a boundary dissolution. Uh, Then, you know, sailing vessels, steamships, telegraphy, (laughs) air flight, radio, television. What's happening is boundaries are being dissolved. Information is beginning, the planet is shrinking to a point. Is what's happening experientially. How does this
0: relate to what you refer to as the exteriorization of the soul and the interiorization of the body?
2: Well, when the planet becomes a, a, a point, in a sense, we all are everywhere. That is the exteriorization uh, of the soul. So, one way of, uh, you know, one way that Information theorists, there's a lot of argument about what is novelty, by the way, and how do you measure it. It turns out to be a slippery concept. One, uh, Norbert Wiener and that crowd, their approach was what they called density of connectivity. Here you have a bunch of points. The more points that are connected to each other, the greater number of pathways among points Hence, the greater the density of complexity. Well, if you carry that idea to its, what I call, rational or absurd conclusion, then the most complex matrix imaginable is what's called a monadic plenum. It's a situation where, uh, in mathematical terms, we say all points are cotangent. In other words, everywhere is here. What is not here is nowhere. And that seems to be where all this technology and novelty is pushing us. And if that's where we're going, then it will not stop until we achieve it. And what does it mean? I think it means we're inventing omnipotence. We, who began as the mud of a warm pond a billion years ago, actually dream of uh, deity and Plato was on to this game 2500 years ago he said if God does not exist man will invent him in the posthumanist manifesto there's an f- interesting statement to ponder it says a human being is like a God it doesn't exist unless we believe in it uh So essentially, we're tooling up to become a species mind. And then, you know, uh, the questions everybody wants answered is, what happens to little old me? in all of this <laughs> uh, again the, the the Dilbert cartoon last week with Dogbert preaching the internet about to achieve omnipotence and Dilbert saying in that case I'll definitely change the kind of files I've been downloading uh, if the internet is God I'll be <laughs> much more <laughs> behaved uh, it's it that this is all happening under the banner of what I call prosthesis. It used to be a fairly ugly medical word. It's still sort of an ugly medical word. But what it means is the extension of the human body by artificial means. What we're doing is we're building a nervous system. We're building a nervous system the size of this planet. And we're doing it fast. The Internet nobody's making these decisions it's just that it's so convenient for this corporation this person uh, this demographer this pornographer this startup company it works for us all we all get something back from it so we all put our shoulder to the wheel and it comes into uh, to being but its internal logic the rationale of the thing is is not glimpsed at all and uh, it, it just uh, i you know i've been talking about the eschaton since the early 70s but until this new information technology arrived i couldn't see how we could get from here to there and everyone told me, you know, your rap, it's interesting, it's you got something going for it, but your time scale is just a complete turnoff. Mm-hmm. 2012, it's too soon, you know. Mm-hmm. 2512. But those people, that kind of thinking always loses. You know, in 1947, mm-hmm. Vannevar Bush, who was uh, President Truman's science advisor told a senate committee that it would be a thousand years before a thermonuclear device could be delivered to the other side of the planet by a rocket propulsion system in 1947 the president's science advisor not knowing that the entire next decade would be defined by intercontinental ballistic missiles able to precisely do that thing. Uh, So what the experts think is absolutely worthless. I, I, I need to give that book back, the Delta T book. Who do I need to give it back to? To you, I'll bring it to lunch. But I looked through it, and I just thought, you know, I'd love to huddle with those guys. And there are other books like that. Like there's a book called When Corporations R- Rule the World. These people are just so incredibly cr- lame. <laughs> um, I understand why, because they need to give advice that you pay for.
1: Right.
2: But And nobody would pay me. To, no corporation will pay for the news of the approaching eschaton because it, it can't be managed. Uh, uh, and so all of these scenarios of the future, to the degree that you wish to be saleable and credible, you have to be wrong. You know? The marketplace has an appetite for lies about the future. I mean, what a wonderfully safe and easy idea to get used to. Corporations will rule the world. You know, this discussion began in uh, 1635 uh, when the King of England chartered uh, uh, the British East India. Company and the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, uh, The British East India Company was called Honest John. It was the Microsoft of its time. It bought and sold popes and kings, and it was capitalist to the core, and people railed against it in the same vocabulary uh, we use. If you think future think involves corporations ruling the world, uh, you need to go back to 1700, and then you can be a consultant with something worth saying. Uh, not to knock these particular guys I mean I spend a lot of time with futurists of different stripes and everybody agrees you know by having the shortest scale I'm the least credible and the most likely to be right uh, but you know uh, yeah
1: <laughs> so hypothetically I mean do you believe that post Pescaton that all these debates about uh, capitalism versus Marxism versus any third
2: is this still going to be moot? Moot. Yeah. The planet will be empty of anything appearing to be human life. I mean the planet will be empty of human uh, of, of the fingerprint of human presence and technology. We're going elsewhere. It's not clear exactly where elsewhere is but that's where we're going. I mean I can't expand sufficiently for you the level of change. I mean, I cannot conceive of post-eschatonic life. I think of it, just to make things simple for myself, as death, because that's the other thing in my life that I have no grip on whatsoever. But, no... We're, we are being propelled by forces we don't understand. Just human life? Uh, That's an interesting question, and I've taken various positions on it, and uh, I, I can't help but notice that as novelty um, aggregates in density, it also concentrates itself spatially In other words, let's go back to our myth and and look at it now from a slightly different point of view. The early moments of the universe involved the entire universe. Uh, In other words, this plasma cloud was the whole shebang. Well then, uh, the next descent into novelty involves the condensation of stars out of primitive hydrogen and helium, Notice that condensation enters our vocabulary. This means that novelty not only is increasing in these stars, but presumably it is decreasing or remaining the same in the areas between the stars. And uh, and then the real action, biology, doesn't even go on in stars biology goes on on these little specks of matter that incidentally seem to be whirling around the stars and then only in certain regimes of chemistry, temperature and pressure so as novelty increases its uh, density it becomes more and more local and now Uh, for the past uh, for the past I don't know, pick a number million years uh, novelty has largely been concentrated in the human species the stars still shine uh The species still compete according to Darwinian selection. Geology is still going about its quiet business in the background. But the cutting edge, if you will, or the point, is now uh, concentrated in the human species. Well, then let's look at the human species. And people object to what is about to be said because they in it a kind of elitism I just follow my mind where it goes I'm not interested in political correctness it's, it's clear to me that in not in terms of moral rightness or superiority or anything like that but in terms of influence Europe leaped forward uh, two or three thousand years ago and elbowed its way to the front of the line and has basically been exporting its cultural styles, its technologies, and its assumptions ever since. European, The European adaptation uh, seems to have crowded out all the others. And Europe is, I mean, and the United States is nothing more than a footnote on European civilization. And this may surprise you to hear this, but they invented all this stuff, not us. They invented the universal rights of man, the citizen, print, capitalism, uh, everything we do, we do derivatively. It's very hard to think of anything (coughs) originally American. Uh, but perhaps now the new technologies are in fact concentrated on the western coast of, of North America. We seem to be able to do it better and better. Well, perhaps this, this concentrating toward a point will continue toward 2012, but then when the eschaton is achieved, I think part of its quality is that it is instantly generalized. You know, it's it is sort of like an explosion, or sort of like a chain reaction. This is why, you know, Hans Moravec, in his book *Mind Children: The Future of Human and Artificial Intelligence*, he talks there about the rise of the AI Wintermute again, and he says uh, we will probably never know what hit us. You know. The AI at any moment. We see there's. We have a fascination with artificial life. <coughs> artificial life is a very ambitious thing to want to uh, to want to do. We probably are a few years away from being able to do that because it involves a knowledge of. Uh, molecular chemistry and chemical dynamics and pharmacokinetics and that we just don't have at this point. But we've always assumed that you had to solve the A-life problem before you could move on to the artificial intelligence problem. But you don't have to if your AI, your artificial intelligence, isn't based in a biological matrix. And so we're building this Internet thing, designing all these bots, and all the bots that are designed are designed to row freely on the Internet. They're designed to leave their home machines and move out into the matrix, gathering information, checking data, doing whatever they're supposed to do. But they're like our pets at this point but we make we're making them smarter and smarter and smarter and eventually i think a combination of circumstances will cause the spark of sentience to be born and these things are not like biological creatures they don't mutate at a rate of uh, you know genetic drift of a few genes per hundred years they, rota- they can mutate thousands of times a second. They can move over the entire surface of the earth in a fraction of a second. And so when this thing comes to self-awareness, it will very quickly take over the entire system. And what will that look like? Hard to say what will the relationship of the AI be to the incoming alien intelligence that is being formed in simulacrum also on the internet it's like gee the human apartment has suddenly become crowded with large strangers with uncertain agendas we thought it was all our show and now we're just hoping nobody asks us to leave you know I don't know what the human relationship to all this will be because, you know, the idea of an AI or of an alien intelligence is a blank screen for our paranoia. You can imagine it as the coming of Maitreya or you can imagine it as Independence Day. Uh, You can have it just about any way you want. What will it really be? Well, I don't know. It's our child it's all emerging from us i think we're going to get the answer to uh, to to the question is man good and you know if you're a cynic you'll bet against it if you're an optimist you'll bet with it but i think that's what's happening is we are on a, a, we are in a relationship of attraction
1: Do, do you see it as a feasibility where artificial intelligence can somehow be grafted within the human living person? I, 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 I'm much more inclined towards stupidity than thoughtlessness, and and it seemed to me that the only hope for humanity is to become smarter.
2: Yes, well, this is an interesting part of all this. When I was in Cambridge, Mass., a few months ago, a guy came to one of my workshops, very interesting. I would like to spend more time with this guy. His name is uh, Alexander Cheslenko, Sasha Cheslenko, and he's young. He has a website. Uh, He's at the Media Center at MIT, what he's interested in is what he calls uh, not VR, which is virtual reality, but ER, enhanced reality. And he says what's coming is uh, a world of intelligent lenses and filters. So let's say that your interests are monarch butterflies, thin blonde women and Swiss bicycles. You can program a set of contact lenses so that those objects will appear outlined in red whenever they enter into your sensorium.
0: Uh,
2: It's a trivial example, but you immediately see the implications. In other words, we are all going to be able to, to cosmetify, tune, colorize and export our own aesthetics out onto the surface of uh, of reality yeah um, the, name again? the last name is Cheslenko. c h i s l e n k o and if that i'm sure the search will kick that out if it doesn't I'll send you the friends, the R. Friends, Yeah. Em.
1: But I think what you're just saying, I think some of these things, like even these, uh, like a website that you customize the kind of information you want, those are like foreshadowings, but they're really crude, you know, right now of, of this, or like the Usenet news groups where people create these these alt, alt groups, which are just alternative things on just any, you know, thing that you want to do, but they're, they're all very crude right now. They're not, okay, right. you can't tune that, but just this dynamic information structures that,
2: Well, uh, imagine you're going, I mean, another thing Cheslenko talks about, and this is not at all woo-woo, I mean, this is so close, you might as well assume it's happened, and that is automatic translation bots. You're going to be able to log into Chinese sites, Japanese sites, Polish sites, and translation will be seamless and automatic. Machine translation is already way along. This is just an implementation problem. That's a done uh, uh, deal. Uh, you, um, you couldn't imagine a world where you, when you're going to the Amazon, you buy a special pair of contact lenses and then when you squint in a certain way, all plants are labeled. Uh, or uh, or uh, all plants all all plants containing tryptamine show up as bright orange. Uh, you know the federal data ethnobotanical database in Washington is connected to your contact lenses, and is every plant that you gaze upon is instantly checked for DMT, and if found positive, colored orange in your line of sight. Uh, Or a visit to Palenque, for example, where you can put on contact lenses and then, with a handheld control, move a chronological dial and watch the ruins rise and fall through the various dynastic phases. Virtual reality in archaeology is big time right now. I mean, I've seen some amazing... This thing called Virtual Tikal. And, oh, they're doing Bonampak... It will be online by the end of the year. The murals, all the murals at Bonampak are being filmed in high-resolution stuff. Here's my personal fantasy. I don't know if personal fantasies should be bared. (laughs) Freudians, please fold your toolkits. But uh, here's here's how I want to live in just a few years. I'm building a house in Hawaii. So as a consequence, I have... uh, a set of blueprints that I deliberately had done in a CAD mode so that I can not only satisfy the county planning department, but I can also build in virtual space an exact replica of my house. And I can put all my books in and everything, and, and then I can, in my house, walk into my house and walk around it. And it's occurred to me that there might be a way to put uh, these polyhemus body sensors so I could wear a certain kind of of, uh, suit that would cause me to become an image inside the virtual uh, model of my house, which is online. Well, then what I could do is I could just garden and animate and cook and live the life I like to live of rural seclusion. But in order not to lose touch with the ideological dialogue and all my friends and the public and so forth, you would be able to log on and uh, see me I wouldn't see you, I wouldn't even know you were there. Uh, uh, If I were Michael Jackson, millions of people could watch you all the time, but you wouldn't know they were there, and they would be fully satisfied as far as a media experience is concerned, and I keep repeating this phrase, and you wouldn't even know they were there. So, this sort of thing will obviously happen. It may not happen for me. Uh, I may not be able to afford the budget on that project. But, uh, you know, first Michael Jackson, then every man. Yeah. How
0: do you uh, account
1: for uh, the, the um, sort of ascension of novelty and in the physical, I mean, as a sort of manifestation of the, of the human uh, creation? versus in the biological world, the novelty obviously going and shrinking and becoming, you know, there's less and less species and there's less and less, you know, potential in the natural world as it sort of, the resources get depleted and, and it's, you know, you look at the, a future where, you know, it's just pets and, and uh, you know, forests that we've sort of planted and that sort of the, the novelty is gone. Or
2: going away. Well, this is part of this phenomenon I talked about where the human world is becoming more complex at the cost of the natural world becoming more simple. This seems to be unavoidable. The great tragedy in that process occurred before the pyramids were built. In other words, it's now believed that the extinction of the so-called megafauna at the close of the last ice age, was all due to human predation. And these amazing and enormous animals, three-ton armadillos, uh, five-ton ground sloths, uh, just these amazing mammals that were at the climax of the mammalian radiation were all destroyed uh, by human predation. The overall complexity I think is rising and but you know we value a species of butterfly more than a new computer language, so we don't say well it's okay that the butterfly isn't here because we've got a new computer language but in f- in fact you know nature has is a is a museum of extinctions uh, it's hard to know how to um, how to scale and look at all this. I moved last night fast through my graphs, but I at one point said, there's the extinction that killed the dinosaurs. Uh, 65 million years ago, a planetesimal object struck the earth and in the course of a single day, dialed out of existence hundreds of thousands of species. The estimate is nothing larger than a chicken lived through this experience on the entire planet. And, uh, and so that certainly was a dialing back of biological diversity. Was it novel or habitual? Well, now we must judge that it was an extremely novel uh, event because neither the flowering plants nor the mammals would have gained ascendancy in the natural world had there not been this enormous extinction event which wiped out many of the uh, uh which wiped out the dinosaurs and many of the uh, more primitive plants so uh you know nature sometimes moves on enormous scales. I'm sure the, I mean, the planet really has not yet recovered 65 million years later from that glancing blow. And yet, uh, out of all that species death and apparent simplification of the biota emerged even more complex biota, ever faster. That's another thing. You know, an extinction event like that didn't set life back Uh, to its beginning life recovered with enormous speed entirely new types of animals and plants filled in all those abandonment niches Uh, for instance in the world of plants we value great forest trees and wonderful woody things we love that while the human presence on the earth has caused the extinction of many animals, many biologists believe it's the human presence on the earth that has created uh, tens of thousands of new species of plants because in climaxed forest ecosystems, most mutations lead nowhere. But if you have devastated land, empty land so-called woody species, heavy cedars, annual plants with high rates of mutation can invade that empty land and uh, uh, speciate within it. Before the rise of human beings the major force on this planet causing the speciation of plants was the meandering of rivers because rivers create sandbars in their curves And this is like a free fire zone for evolutionary struggle in the forest everything is at climax and there's no margins but in these open land areas uh, Carl Sauer reflecting on this situation great geographer said uh, man found this planet a climaxed rainforest he will leave it a weedy lot but probably, overall, m- more species of plant than previously, uh, or the adjustments may be slight. So, I don't know. It's it's hard to get a scale on these things, yeah. I was wondering if
0: you ever put the timeline right to um,
1: uh, Stephen Hawking or, or Carl Sagan or people
2: like that. Uh... Not to Stephen Hawking. Uh, Carl Sagan visited me once in Hawaii, but he was more concerned to figure out whether I really was talking to extraterrestrials on mushrooms. To his credit, he was willing to come and have a discussion about that. Uh, No... But, you know, if you want, I mean, this may sound like wild stuff to you, but you should hear what the physicists are saying. The really, the people, well, I'm thinking of Alan Guth at MIT. He's the universe in a bottle guy. This is a guy who wants to build universes, And and he has a plan for how to do it and writes papers about closing space-time loops and then what would we do with these universes if we built them, you know? I mean, you have them on the shelf at MIT. And then the question is, are we in such a uh, universe? There's a guy named Sandor Lenz at Stanford. He's the time is a fractal froth man. And time as a fractal froth sounds begins to sound sort of like the time wave. The time wave is also a recursive fractal. Uh, I don't. I've never thirsted for uh, acceptance by the academy. It probably would mean I would have to go somewhere and leave my home or something. Uh, and also, you know. I have the certitude of megalomania, so you
1: don't—you
2: you don't need Carl Sagan to tell you you're right when you have megalomania. Uh, you just confidently sit back and wait for it all to blow your way, and. You know, it's worked for me over and over in my life. I mean, I was into psychedelics in the not taking them. I was a little kid, but reading about them, excited about them, this incredibly obscure thing that all. And then I watched, and my entire civilization go mad over my obsession. Uh, and this has happened—the uh, w- internet. You know, I just—it's like I dreamed it up. It's exactly what I wanted. And I never told anybody it's exactly what I wanted, but here it is, just like the psychedelic revolution that I wanted. So I, I think, and let me say about these theories and what was said last night about novelty, I'm quite certain that if I'm right, about any of this about time's fractal structure about the eschaton about 2012 that we will f- it will be figured out long before we get there in other words I track very closely the dialogue that goes on in science and philosophy and all that and they're all moving the right direction reluctantly, slowly, unconsciously Take a subject like time machines. Uh, f- ten years ago, that an ar- a article discussing time machines in any sober fashion would have been refused by any major scientific journal. That just was, uh-uh. No, you don't understand the basic rules of the game. Please go back to Physics 1A again. Uh, now, uh, Uh, you know Physical Review Scientific American the Journal of Theoretical Physics uh, all have carried long detailed discussions of time travel with critiques approaches, mathematical equations people are making their careers on this stuff. Kip Thorne down at uh, Caltech has a a a, a bevy of graduate students, and all they do is work on schemes for time travel. Uh, So I, I, I I have a small smile about all this. I don't claim to be a shaman, but I've at times said, a shaman is someone who has seen the end. That's all a shaman is. It's somebody who's seen the end. And once you've seen the end, then you just go back to your position in the story and just live it out with grace and humor because you've seen the end and all the worry and strong and drung that goes on about life is just sort of for you uh, art and things become easy and light. Uh, you prefer to
0: the psychedelic experience being similar to... Uh, experiencing what it's like after death Um, the after death body so it's not such a shock to you when it happens how does that relate to what we're talking about what we've been talking
2: about well this is a deep and heavy subject Uh, um we don't know what death is uh the faith of scientific rationalism which is a very limited church is that it's nothing at all that you just lose coordination of senses and then there's nothing uh, but looking trying to look at it from a slightly different point of view and trying to do some honor to the universally held belief among all people Times and peoples except European rationalists, that there might be something persisting, I've sort of come to the notion that much of what we've talked about here uh, can be illuminated and understood using metaphors of dimensionality. Uh, You know, the difference between a living thing and a thing like a chair a pencil a can of beans is that the 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 non-living thing has no very great variability in the temporal dimension in other words if you if you uh, deal with a chair and come back and look at it six months or a year later even a hundred years later it's still the chair that it was but if you deal with an organism it's changing hourly hourly by the second by the minute well then in a way we could almost say what biological objects are is they are objects with a extended in the temporal dimension in some way in other words uh, let's think of ourselves a person is a form Of some sort. This flesh is not the same flesh of five years ago, but this form is the same form of five years ago. An organism is a form which persists in time while the matter which composes it is only incidental to its persistence. <laughs> Unlike an ordinary object, which if this glass were to be leaking molecules of glass, eventually it would just disappear. So, uh, so then it appears that chemistry can somehow become... Uh, um, abducted you could almost say uh, an organism is is chemistry abducted into hyperspace and then these cycles of energy uh, happen. Well then the what happens at death with an organism is all death is is an organism changes into a thing. a corpse is a thing. if you embalm it and mummify it it has the same qualities as that chair I was talking about so death is when a a higher dimensional object changes into a lower dimensional object and the change is is accompanied by the retraction of the form into, into the dimension from which it came so it seems to me that what we are is a kind of morphogenetic field that at death ceases to interact with matter, but there is no reason to suppose that the field disappears or ceases to exist. As an example or as a metaphor, imagine you have a magnet and you want and a piece of typing paper and some iron filings, and you want to demonstrate that there's a f- magnetic field around the magnet. Well, you bring it up underneath the paper, and the magnetic f- the f- iron filings all arrange themselves along the lines of the field. Well, you can do that over and over again. Take the thing away, they all fall down and disorganize. Bring the magnet up, they snap into the Visible signature of the magnetic field. We'll do that a thousand times, convince yourself it works. Now throw away the iron filings. Now, do you have any doubt that the field still exists and is around uh, the magnet? So I think, uh, you know, organisms are organized matter whole has its genesis in a morphogenetic field of some sort and that field the nature of its existence away from the matter it organizes is a matter for the further scientific study you could almost make a kind and don't take this too seriously but you could almost make a quantum mechanical analogy here and say Uh, human Human beings exist in two states just as entities in the quantum mechanical realm exist in two states. We have our reality as particles and when we are particles we are subject to the laws of particularity which are such things as you can't be in two places at one time the past comes after, before, excuse me, the past comes before the future, rules like that. But we also have another potential nature, which is as a field. And when we are, exist as fields, we are what is conventionally known as dead or not yet existent. And so then... uh, Fields and particles exchange their natures according to the kinds of observations that are being uh, carried out on them. That doesn't seem unreasonable to me, especially when you, as I do, believe that life is a chemical strategy for amplifying quantum mechanical indeterminacy into macrophysical dimensions. If it weren't, we would not have free will. If, if we weren't somehow amplifiers of quantum mechanical indeterminacy, then we would have no more free will than water rushing down a hill or a boulder rolling down a hill. We would be the blind, vict- uh, the blind servants of physics. But we know and experience decision-making Well, decision-making and bifurcations like that are only met in the natural world at the quantum mechanical level, except in the domain of biology. And biology has always been, I mean, to this point anyway, very mysterious. You know, uh, Erwin Schrodinger in his essay, What is Life, in 1937, where he anticipated DNA. If you've never read this, you know, DNA was discovered in 1950, in 37, Schrodinger wrote a little book, 60 pages, called "What is Life?" and he said, "It's it's gonna be like this. He's it's gonna be. He said it's it, it's a. He called it an aperiodic crystal. Life is an aperiodic crystal, and this is true. You know, your DNA is like a complex." set of instructions to matter. And it begins in the fetal state. The instructions are form this kind of tissue, produce this kind of enzyme. And as your whole life unfolds, there is a a molecular biologist looking at a human or an animal life. What he sees is genes being turned off and on by internal programs in the genetic material. So, okay, you've reached age 12, operons activate the turn-on sex hormones, suddenly pubic hair, deep voice, or in the case of women, breast tissue, so forth. Well, Okay, so now you're, you're, you're 55 or 50, New operons are turned on, reproductive processes are suppressed, different things begin to happen. This isn't just happening. This is all being scripted and is being turned on and off inside of you. That's why, you know, one of the things we probably will have to deal with before we get to 2012 is this is not a... uh, this is not a difficult thing at this point in the world of cloning mammals and that kind of thing, is what's called a stop drug. Not immortality, not eternal youth, but a drug that would simply stop the expression of the aging operon. And at whatever age you took this thing, you would remain that age for the foreseeable future. That doesn't require a full understanding of the genetic code or even what's really going on. You just basically have to find a certain operon system and disrupt it. You're already
1: looking for that. Oh, yeah.
0: talking about
2: it. Why would Well, imagine the social turmoil and upheaval. I mean, first of all, uh, it means our power elites would never be refreshed by the hand of death it means, uh, you know, horrible celebrities and awful, awful people would just live on and on and on. I don't know. Maybe Mix had the treatment. Uh,
1: uh, yeah. I um, wanted to get closure, a little bit more closure anyway, on something that was brought up earlier. Um, and I guess this is, this is in the department of uh, what we had to deal with before 2012. And that's religion, and I, I think it falls under the, your category of real serious stuff. So, um, uh, as a closure, something came up earlier. We got off from the Dalai Lama, and for myself... Thanks I'm, to you, you know, Bill. I'd like to. Well, I didn't bring it up. Okay. I'd like to have my, even my remarks stricken from the record, because uh, people may have misunderstood where I was coming from, Doubtless. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not, that I not, not that I couldn't defend it against all the detractors, but. Uh,
2: Certainly not. <laughs> uh,
1: I, it, it wasn't just. It, what I was trying to get at wasn't. It's more of a, your rap on religion and its um, misuses. My, the object of my response was uh, bigger than the, the Dalai Lama. It's, uh, um, and, and I'm not looking for con, uh, conflict between the Buddhist group, uh, uh, like like you had, um, uh, or dissension for its own sake, but for the sake of uh, honesty, I think, uh, coming to the millennium, honesty and clear-sighted information, so we can decide things for ourselves. Uh, so uh, I think it's 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 worthy of dialogue, especially we're going to talk about conflict. I think you've got a lot of conflict from your response uh, with psychedelics in the Buddhist community. But I think it's a, the psychedelic community's responsibility to ask questions, uh, hard questions to criticize, uh, especially the, the truth or teaching that comes down to us from some, some sort of divine sanction uh, or claims higher ground. And I, I think it's, as far as what we have to deal with in the coming millennium, I don't think we can afford, I don't think we have the luxury to give religion a free ride or play the game that it wants to play. I think we have to change the nature of the religious game. And what I mean by that is no longer uh, can religion or religious icons be beyond criticism. Uh,
2: no one... I finally figured out what you want me to do. You want me to give the hang the Pope speech, right?
1: I I just
2: think no vision should be accepted
1: because it presumes uh, a preconceived or an a priori stamp of absolute truth. I think any teaching today in the marketplace of ideas and visions has to make it on its own merits. No preconceived, no ace in the hole, no handicap. So, uh, Everything should be on, as you put it, on the table. And what I was trying to get at with the the remarks about the Dalai Lama in Tibet, uh, I think that, you know, talk about changing the nature of the game. What they do, the religious people, whether it's East or West, um, they kind of have this dichotomy between the spiritual world, which is what we should concentrate on, and as you put it, the secular world, you talk about... Secular in a secular way, Tibet has no better history than any other country. Right. But this isn't the image that's given, and and they play this funny little game where they say, okay, this is what matters—the spiritual world, uh, our social world where we spend most of our time with, where political decisions are made every day that affect our lives for life or death. That's not that's not important. And yet they argue on the other hand that, well, we need to be free, and we need to, you know... So it is important, you know, by their own uh, actions to try to free the, their people. It The secular world is important, and, and we shouldn't devalue it, or we shouldn't be hypnotized by this cognitive
2: dissonance that they've got us to accept. Like, we see well, you keep saying that they've gotten us to accept it. But religious people, and what I mean is...
1: They say, well, this is what's important—the spiritual world—and yet, according to their own teachings, sometimes their society is just the opposite. You know. Um,
2: well, this is this is why is. you don't want to buy a pig in a poke. Right. I so, mean, yeah. I've always wondered how can people go to India and be charmed? Right. You know, by incredible brutality, exactly. poverty, cupidity. Uh, I mean, if this is a spiritual society, good grief!
1: Yeah, and, we, and most of, of most people just sort of accept this cognitive dissonance. You know, we've got this wrap, and it should be like this. But you look at the proof of the pudding; it may be the exact opposite. We just kind of say, "Well, that's okay." I think in the future we have to hold, especially the, those who are above us, we and they claim a higher power because they claim that higher power or a higher ground we have to be extra critical even of our own
2: well I I agree with you but I think it's happening I mean I think this is a it's a tough you know if you're a guru these days you're almost condemned to spending a life with foolish people Uh, I, I think that the stock of all that has gone way down Yeah, the the thing is, the thing to get people to realize is that it's fun to be a grown-up. It's fun to pay your own bills and row your own boat and have the only key to the apartment. Uh, And I'm talking to women, I'm talking to men. uh, We all have been infantilized into thinking we have to cut deals that we don't want to make—the marriage, the corporation, the union, the party, whatever it is—and uh, people people sell themselves terribly short. And I don't know whether this has always gone on, or whether it's always gone on a little, but is now getting worse. Uh, but it it is a it is a wonderful thing to take charge. Of your life, your finances, your spiritual destiny, your sexuality, your your artistic vision, everything. We should not cut de- deals. Uh, you know, one of the things I learned at Berkeley as a radical that I've never been able to export very far in all the talking and speaking I've done is people have become entirely too polite. <laughs> you know at, at Berkeley, in the old days, we used to we used to always at the tip of our tongue day and night was the word bullshit, and you were to scream it at the least hint of such material coming near you and and you were to it, it didn 't matter cafeteria restaurant classroom when bullshit raised its head you were to take aim and fire instantly
1: Uh, well now you can't do that you've got this politically correct civility rep and everybody well we have to be nice well I think someone said when you're in an argument with a bully it's not about being civil it's about getting your truth across well
2: this is it's worse than the the enforced civility which is i think just the surface of it it's what i've come to identify as a great evil in the world thanks to my 19 year old son who has brought me to this viewpoint it's it's relativism relativism is bullshit And what is relativism? Relativism is the idea that you really shouldn't criticize other people's ideas because all ideas are sort of on an equal footing. So, you know, I follow molecular biology, you follow Babaji, somebody else is a Kabbalist, somebody else worships uh, their broker, and you're supposed to not criticize.
1: And it doesn't make any difference because everything's reduced to, well, you like the Dodgers... I like the 49ers or something like that. You like vanilla ice cream, I like chocolate, and it's no bigger than that. You're a Nazi, and I'm a Democrat, but that shouldn't keep us
2: from... Right. You know,
1: it's just you happen to like to exterminate large numbers of people. You just have this minor problem.
2: Well, this is because people don't know how to make distinctions and what the rules of evidence are. What it really is, is it's a breakdown of the ability to conduct rational argument. Because, you know, uh, in like, for instance, in the Middle Ages, uh, in Central Asia, they would meet at Kashgar and places like that, uh, a Jew, a Manichaean, a Christian, a Nestorian, a Buddhist, and a Jain. And they would hold vast public debates for days attended by hundreds of people shouting crowds rooting for various factions and these doctrinal things would be thrashed out according to rules which apparently everyone respected and understood and when you were defeated you knew it and when you were exalted you knew it in the fuzzy friendly world of political correctness you know And I do it myself because you can't always be a warrior. And at some times, you know, late in the day, somebody will say something to me that I just... And I just say, yeah... Uh-huh, uh, face on Mars or whatever it is and I just don't have the strength to lash out anymore but I, I think that you're very right Barry part of of uh, the antidote to uh, informational overwhelmment to social islanding to trivialization uh, is uh, R- rational discourse conducted if necessary at high volume, people are so concerned that nobody feel hurt or rejected, or you know well, in intellectual discourse you don 't want people to feel hurt, you want them to feel destroyed <laughs> if their situation if their position merits that we're all grown-ups we don't have to coddle each other for crying out loud send the inner child down to the baths and sharpen your rhetorical knives and logical razors and do that kid a favor make sense out of your life and reality there's uh, sense to be made and it's very grown-up and very exalting, and uh, it doesn't have to exclude uh, all the other uh, fun and games of life, but it certainly uh, gives cogency and meaning to the enterprise, not only of trying to live, and not only of trying to be a, a, a decent person for one's loved ones and children, but to build a better world. A better world, if it comes will be built on uh, clear thinking. It will be built on honesty. It will be built uh, on uh, direct, clear communication. I mean, these are the things that constitute visionary common sense. And it's because the world is topsy-turvy that I... Uh, considered, you know, a drug-crazed pariah and uh, have to then become the apostle of order, dignity, adult behavior, responsibility, and the obligation uh, to make sense. Anyway, that's the end of our weekend. Thank you very much.
0: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, right near the end of this talk that we just listened to, uh, when Terrence was going on about the fact that he thought we had all become too polite, well, uh, if you're living here in the States right now, my guess is that, well, that buffoon called Trump entered your mind. And uh, for our fellow saunters outside of this madhouse that we pretend is a single, cohesive nation, (laughs) well, one of the main attractions of Mr. Trump is that he is as far from being politically correct as can be. So, uh, obviously, I can't help wondering what Terrence would say about the current mess that we're in. My guess is that uh, he would do the only sensible thing that there is to do about it, laugh. (laughs) Because uh, we're apparently right in the middle of some kind of a horrible Bugs Bunny meets the Roadrunner cartoon. So in a few weeks, uh, when the anvil finally falls on our heads, well, we just have to remember to laugh at the insanity of the political landscape in the United States these days. And uh, before I say anything else, uh, yes, I did have a little start when... uh, at about 18 minutes into this talk, Terence said, and I quote, Right now, in terms of my low-scale historical vision, without the time wave, I can only see about three years into the future, end quote. Well, uh, as you know, Terence died less than three years after he made that statement. And uh, that should give us something to consider, uh, maybe on several different levels, don't you think? And I also found it interesting that uh, back there in August of 1997, one of his technological dreams for three years into the future was that we should all have a 256K bandwidth access to the Internet, which uh, now seems impossibly slow by today's standards. Another technology that he hoped would appear uh, is a dial that you could use if, say, you were at the ruins in Palenque and see what the area looked like by dialing back throughout its history. Well, uh, as far as I know, that isn't available just yet. But uh, something that you may want to try, uh, should you find yourself at the Mayan ruins in Palenque, Mexico, is to listen to podcast number 10 that I published on August third, two 2005. It's a recording that was made of Christian Rush in 2001 as he walked us around the Mayan ruins near Palenque. Interestingly, uh, this is one of the podcasts that gave me the idea that these podcasts might be worth continuing for a while. You see, uh, a month or so after I posted that program, I received an email from a young man in China. He told me that he recently took a holiday and visited the ruins at Palenque. And, while he walked around, he played Christian's talk, and felt that he had a personal guided tour by someone much more knowledgeable than the uh, government rangers whose main job seemed to be chasing people away who were smoking cannabis. Now, if you haven't yet heard that podcast, it may be interesting for you to do so sometime. And uh, for many of our fellow Saloners who have been to Palenque, I'm sure that it will bring back a lot of fond memories. Now, uh, think back for a moment to the section of this rap where Terrence was uh, describing his technological fantasy for a virtual world representation of his own house. Well, uh, he actually did get to give something like that a try when Bruce Damer and Terrence's son, Finn, built a virtual world in which Terence interacted with, uh, well, with anyone who figured out how to find it. And uh, those stories have already been told in previous podcasts. The one thing that I remember most about that event, though, is the screen name that Terrence used, Zone Ghost. (laughs) At one time, I uh, thought about using that for a name of a character in a novel, but uh, I've abandoned that novel now, so hopefully somebody else will pick up on Zone Ghost in their creative work one day. I really do like that handle. Now, before I go, I first want to let you know that thanks to Frank Nuccio we are going to get to listen to this year's Palenque Norte Lectures, uh, which he was so kind to record for us. So I'll podcast one or two of them uh, in the next couple weeks before getting back to the rest of these Terence McKenna tapes that I have. Obviously, uh, my plans for podcasting only McKenna until March uh, have already gone astray, (laughs) which is actually a good thing. And in addition to the uh, Palenque Norte Lectures, I may also be podcasting uh, some talks from a conference that Charlie Grobe produced a while back. To be honest, I wasn't even aware of the conference, but when uh, Charlie was here visiting the other day, he mentioned the fact that he thought he still had the original tapes from that conference, uh, which featured Bruce Eisner, David Nichols, Rick Doblin, Richard Jensen, Timothy Leary, and uh, Charlie himself, of course. So if Charlie can find those tapes, uh, we'll get to hear a bit of that conference as well. Also, my good friend Matt Palomary came by the other day, and he is uh, currently in the middle of uh, producing both a coffee table book and a documentary film about the very influential Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. And when he said that he was thinking about podcasting the audio interviews that uh, he made with dozens of well-known American authors, well, we both agreed that the psychedelic song 2.0 might be the right place to release these interviews. And while there still are no concrete plans for uh, Salon 2.0 that have been formulated by our Slack.com team, a discussion has begun about how we can seamlessly transition into a new format. For what it's worth, uh, as of now, I still plan on doing a very brief introduction to the 2.0 programs so as to uh, provide a little continuity with what we've been doing so far. Also, as some of our fellow Saloners have guessed... I plan on uh, submitting a few of my own podcasts to the community to uh, vote on as well. So it's going to be a few years yet before you uh, hear the end of me here in the Salon. However, uh, there is one other thing I almost forgot to tell you, and that's the fact that somehow I've messed up the automatic invite system for our Salon 2.0 Slack team. Right now I'm sending personal invites to the people who let me know via the uh, comments sections of our program notes and through the forums and soon I'll also catch up on the emails that have come in through the comment form on our website and uh, send out those personal invites as well. So, uh, hey, thanks for working with me as I try to get this activity a little better organized. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.